This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. I'm here. And today we are jumping into another chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38. And it's like we're... (laughs) as we get into this, there's more shenanigans where you see and you're like, man, these people. (laughs) And it feels like every week we're apologizing for what we're about to talk about. And I think we just need to stop. Like, yeah, we didn't choose this. This is in the Bible. (laughs) We're just on to the next chapter. Yeah. Don't blame us. Yeah. It's a little stronger than shenanigans. So I don't like how you (laughs) like shenanigans. It's like casual pranks. (laughs) This is not. Yeah. This is, this is a little, little heavier. All right, so here's a question for you. So we've gone through, and by the way, like it sounds, it feels like we're beating. I love these guys. Like I want everyone to know that as that as hard as we are on the patriarchs, I really do love these guys because they show, man, they're really messy, and yet they don't lose the promise and the covenant. And and eventually, God, you know, is kind of sanding all their rough edges off, and they end well. I named my son Jacob. So it, we don't, we, you know, we're not, we're not out to get these guys, but by, by giving you the unvarnished view of scripture, what we're showing is these guys are not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is God in his faithfulness who doesn't walk away from these scoundrels. And so having gone through all of Genesis, because we're actually tracking along through Genesis for a little longer than we originally planned, but having seen all of Genesis together, how do you see Genesis differently now than you did before we started this series? I think I see it as far grosser. I agree with that. But in a weird way, just like you said, it's made it far more beautiful. The fact that for the first time ever, because I think we do read Genesis as a story about these amazing patriarchs, which they are amazing, but mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're not <laughs> in a lot of ways as well. Yeah. And God kind of gets lost in it sometimes, I think. Mm-hmm. Like we do such character s- stories and sermons about all of these guys, which is fine and whatever. But this is probably my first read through of Genesis, like you said, in an unvarnished way that's like, oh no, humanity's bad. <laughs> and we've yeah. been bad since the fall and that's okay that god still is a loving god who comes after sinners exactly how they are Mm -hmm. because these guys do change like you say there's some transformation in their lives but it takes a long time Mm -hmm. so part of it makes me feel better even we were just talking about current events in our culture and it makes me feel okay that thousands of years ago that the world was messy (laughs) yeah it was god didn't forget about it god didn't i mean after Noah, he did start over once (laughs) but after that we're talking genesis 12 on so it is a wild story to look at like the ups and downs of humanity but also just the grace of god that's constant it's a comfort to me on a number of levels like you just talked about culturally because like man you're you're talking to somebody who can get lost in the headlines and and look at you know a twitter feed or whatever 
And I just, I start going like, why, like somebody pressed the button. Like, can we just be done with this? Like humanity's as Mark used to say, too dumb to survive. Yeah. <laughs> like we, we, we've gone off the cliff. We've, but then you look back and you say, okay, God, God has functioned through his people, his remnant who were also messy and times that were far crazier, it seems in some sense. And that's one point where it's like, okay, I can take comfort in that. And God still was weaving together a beautiful story through messy times. Okay, so God, use your people through these messy times is, is the prayer. But then the other side of that is it really kind of beats out of you any notion that your salvation is really about what you do. Because you're watching guys that, I mean, at some point, like I, I've said last week, it, it's, it seems like Jacob is trying <laughs> to step out of the covenant. Yeah. And to lose his salvation at some point. Just, I mean, some of the decisions he makes are like, whoa. They make the wrong decision every turn. It feels like that <laughs> yeah. sometimes. And yet God's like, nope, not letting you go. Not letting you go. And so what does that do for us? Is it, it gives us a comfort, not, not to settle in our sin, but not to despair in it. Yeah. You know, if, if God didn't walk away from them and his promise was strong enough and his faithfulness was strong enough to hold on to them, he's got me, yeah. you know, and, and all of my messiness, you know, that's a lot like theirs and a lot different than theirs, but he's, his promises for me. And so he's got me. And so when I feel like I don't measure up and when I feel like I'm failing on my end of the deal, and when I feel like I don't worship him as I ought, he's, he's still the same God. He didn't let go of those guys, you know? He's not going to let go of me. And that's a comfort. Yeah, and I think going through Genesis and Galatians at the same time has just been profound in a sense. Because mm. you have Paul just shoved it in our face that, like, it's not about you. Yeah. Like, you didn't do anything for this, that you're justified by faith alone. And even, we'll preach on that this Sunday, but he brings up Abraham. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, no, the promise isn't changing. Like, look at these guys. And so it's been cool to have, like, the messiness of Genesis in my head and then show up on Sunday and just have a proclamation that's like, oh, it's all about God. Mm -hmm. Like it always has been. Yeah, like it's not changing. It wasn't that. It's not now. It won't be in the future that it's all under control. Yeah, and that's very good news because as we get into the passage today, it's messy again. It's, It's a story where you're like, good grief. Like where are the bright spots? By the way, some bright spots are coming through Joseph, though even though he's gonna be suffering injustices, he actually is fairly righteous through them. But today we're dealing with Judah, who is the fourth-born son of Jacob, born to Leah, and he is going to be the one through whom the Messianic line comes. And you read, you start reading the story today, and you're like, oh, whoa, I, this is not a good man. Yeah. <laughs> he is not a good man. Um, and so Genesis 37, through the remainder of the book, is kind of setting at odds Joseph, against Judah. And so from the beginning, you know, remember last week, Jacob is giving him the coat. He's clearly the favorite son. And you're thinking, well, he's doing the right thing. He's pointing out the faults of his brothers. He's, you know, he's concerned about doing the right thing. So clearly he's going to be the one that's in the messianic line. You know, he's, he's the good one. And then God gives of all the brothers, somebody who's just gross. Last week, you know, Judah sold his brother and was like, no, 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 no. Why should we just kill him? Let's get something out of it. You know, and so he gets 20 pieces of silver. And, you know, this week you're going to see that he's gross and nasty. And so it's like setting up, 
at polar ends, you know, you have the right, the most righteous son in Joseph, even though he's arrogant, against Judah, who's going to be really yucky. And it's like saying, okay, as you're going into the story, it's almost like God saying, okay, which one's it going to be? Which one's it going to be? Which one am I going to choose to carry forth my messianic line? And every one of us wants to say, the righteous one. Look at Joseph. And ta-da, it's not. And again, it's like, why would God do that? Why, why does he pick a Jacob over an Esau? Why, why does he do that? Why does he pick a Judah over a Joseph? And the answer is, it's not about them. It is God's righteousness that matters at the end of the at the end of the story and the promise and the covenant. That's the hope, not who's got the better checklist. So, having said all that, we close out Genesis thirty-seven. Joseph has been sold into Egypt. Jacob thinks he's dead. Judah has sold him. All the sons are like, "Oh, look at this bloodied coat." You know what happened to your son? Jacob's assuming, "Oh, my son's dead." And so right as that's happening, it says in chapter 38, verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. So we stop there because here's another, another theme of Scripture. And what do you notice right out of the gates here? Who is who is Judah chasing after? Canaanites. Canaanites, like always a problem. Stop doing this. You know, like this this doesn't go well. And the reason for this, by the way, because we live in in crazy woke stupid culture, it's racism, right? You want to say that it's that has nothing to do with it. This has nothing to do with it. God is going to graft in a Canaanite in this chapter into the people of God. So it's not that they're Canaanites; it's that their culture is utterly gross that they're sacrificing children, that they're committing orgies, that they, they live in a way that is diametrically opposed to, to righteousness. So God's like, I don't want my covenant family being corrupted by the influences of, of Canaanite culture. It's not because they're Canaanites. It's because of their culture. But Judah, as you'll see, looks at the Canaanites and is like, oh, I want some of that culture. And so he marries the Canaanite wife and just to refresh, when Abraham is finding a wife for Isaac, what's the one command he gives the servant? Go back to my homeland. Go back to my homeland. Don't take a wife from here. Then when Isaac is looking for a bride for Jacob, what does he say? Get out of here. Get out of here. Don't take a Canaanite, right? And so now here you have Judah who's like, I'm going to take a Canaanite, right? And by the way, the, he fits right in. He fits the Canaanite culture. Yeah, and again, we have the silence of Jacob. Yeah, that's true. We he kind of goes MIA for a second, like he always does when his children go awry. And it just seems like that's been a real theme in his life. Like when the fatherly advice should be given, it's not. Nor, I, and I guess the messiness of the family, I don't think Judah would have respected his father's wishes anyways. True. To a certain degree. But that doesn't minimize Jacob's silence. Like, be a father, do something. Like, we've mm -hmm. been talking about for most of Jacob. Like, be the patriarch you're supposed to be in your family. Yeah, but it's almost like you get the sense that Jacob sees Rachel and her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. They're the only ones. They're like my legit family that I'll care for and pour into. And, you know, you get the impression that Joseph, he's been trained up in the Lord. He he knows things. He, you know, he's going to, at 17, he's sent off to Egypt. He's still going to be chasing after God and all of the injustice. So he was trained up in this. 
then you see Judah, and it's like you you don't even get the slightest sense that Jacob has poured into the other ten children, yeah, or their wives for that matter. Which you could know, be worse. The fact that his concubine was okay sleeping with Reuben, you know, like you just get the the fact that Jacob tolerates the rest of his family, and mm. and you you see the fruit of it. Now that could be wrong. That's total conjecture. But you definitely get the feel, you know, the favoritism. Everybody else is kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah, you're a you're a son of mine, but eh, he's he's not really into them. And since Rachel died, he seems like a shell of a man. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of lost the one love. Yeah, he's he's going to be shredded in grief for the latter part of his life. So it says she conceived again and bore a son and she called his his name Onan and yet again she bore a son and she called his name Sheila how do you should we say Sheila or Sheila i like Sheila Sheila but it just sounds confusing <laughs> a boy named Sheila it's like the uh the old Johnny Cash song a boy, boy named Sue. Sue he's going to be tough yeah, yeah he's going to be tough he's going to have to learn how to fight with that name so Judah was in Shezib when she bore him so verse 6, it says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, here comes like rapid-fire kind of craziness here. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Like, whoa. <laughs> like, you, you haven't seen that to this point in Scripture. You've seen where God has rained down judgment on, on the world with a flood. You've seen where God has rained down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. But I can't think of a time before this where God says, I really don't like that guy. <laughs> you know, and and, yeah. and errs out. Yeah, he even protected Cain, which seems yeah. you know, like no one's gonna lay a hand on Cain. And this guy, I mean, imagine what he did. Yeah, so but it doesn't tell us what he did. But his son is so utterly wicked, and we don't know if that means, you know, is he abusive? Is he mistreating uh Tamar? We don't know what that means. And then it says, then Judah said to Onan, who's the second born son. So Ur dies, firstborn son's out of the picture. So Judah goes to Onan and says, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is something that's called leveret marriage. And in the ancient world, even before Moses gave us the law, if you go to, to all the ancient legal codes, um, you'll find that this was the practice. And again, in our modern sensibilities, if if we if Congress passed a law that said, hey, Sam, if, if you die without children, your brother has to take Laura and impregnate her to give her children. I don't like when you personalize these things. <laughs> but really, I think it makes yeah, it more crazy, right? It does, yeah. Well, let's make it No, freaky. don't don't bring my family into this. <laughs> But it does. It makes it more crazy. And in modern times, we look at that and we we're just so quick to judge that as barbaric and everything else. And today it would be. But I want you to get in a time machine and jump back. You know, this is thirty eight hundred years ago. There's there's no grocery stores. There's you know farming is hit and miss with flood seasons and everything else. Life and death hangs on a razor's edge always. And so. The way communities works, the way families works are so important. Women, by the way, in the ancient world did not have property rights and everything else. And so I want you to imagine, we look at this and we say, oh, what a terrible practice. But if you jumped in a time machine and went back in the ancient world and Ur dies, 
well, now you see that Tamar is no longer a virgin. You know, she's she's been married. Nobody's going to want her. So she's left to fend for herself. What does that mean for Tamar? She's practically dead. She's practically dead. And so it was a mercy in the ancient world. Long before this became a biblical custom, you know, like if you go to the old Hittite law that's written in 1650 BC, which is close to this time period, this is what it says. It says, if a man has a wife and a man and that man dies, his brother shall take his widow as a wife. That seems archaic. It seems oppressive to us. But in the ancient world, that was a mercy to that woman because otherwise she was dead. And now this... Just go for it. Nowadays, you would do this. You just wouldn't marry. Like, if my brother died and Amy, my sister-in-law, I would take care of, you know, like I wouldn't just leave her to fend for herself. Mm-hmm. wouldn't marry her, but it's it's a gracious thing, if anything. But what you're thinking is, okay, well, I've got bank accounts and I've got, you know, an IRA or I've got retirement accounts. And when I die, I'll leave some for her so that she, you know, let's say that she can't work. Yeah, I guess we've... Insurance, you know, or yeah. you would you would make sure that she's taken care of. They don't they don't have life insurance in the ancient world. They don't have four hundred one ks. What they do have is land that requires people to work the land, which means you need to have children. children which means you need to have somebody who can give you children. That's true. Children are such a game changer in that culture because they're necessities. They're yeah. not just nice to have. So in our in our modern moral superiority, because we can only see five minutes ago today, we we look at them and we say, "Oh, they're so barbaric. They're so terrible." But yeah. if you if you got in a time machine and you were put in those situations, you'd be going, "Oh, thank God that they made provision to keep me from starving to death out here with nothing to to take care of me." So. All the ancient cultures of this region, even the ones that were the more advanced ones, like the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they had customs or laws like this. All of this is really, really hard to understand because today when we think of marriage and children, it's it's almost like a luxury. You know, we, we want to get married because it's something nice to do. We want to have somebody to spend our lives with and to love and to lean on. And we want children because we want to share our life with somebody. Back then, all of this, I mean... It, Maybe it's a little less romantic or beautiful or whatever, but it was it was essential. It was it was a it was part of life, life and death. Like you needed this stuff. And so when Tamar has Ur die and you hear Judah say, Hey, Onan, take her as a wife and go into her, like we go, ooh, gross. But my guess is Tamar, as you're going to see throughout this story, desperately wants this. In fact, she's going to scheme to get impregnated when nobody's willing to impregnate her. So this is something that she desperately wants because she knows where this story's going if it doesn't work out for her. So in our modern sensibilities, again, this is disgusting, and it is disgusting to modern sensibilities. But give 3,800 years ago a little grace, (laughs) right? Now that we've gotten the ordinary passage out of the way, (laughs) we thought that was weird. (laughs) Now we get into the the passage that Will has got some really, really wonderful commentary on. (laughs) You're welcome. Verse nine, it says, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. He's selfish. Like this is, you know, because if in a leveret marriage, when you had children, those children were still named in the genealogy or lineage of the dead brother. Hmm. So for instance, like if you look at when Bathsheba has Solomon, 
in the genealogy of Jesus, it will say Bathsheba, and then it mentions Uriah. Even though Uriah was killed and was not the father of Solomon, David was, it includes Uriah in there because David is, in a sense, some kind of a leveret parent there. Anyway, moving right along. Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. He's selfish. He does not want to have to raise someone else's kid. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. So, Will? I think it says everything it says. Right. So basically... I think it's pretty clear cut. Yeah. And so this is... Um, we're going we're gonna to get into an awkward moment. So for the next, I don't know, minute or two, if you have kids, now's your opportunity to press pause or fast forward. Uh, but what he's doing is basically he's he's willing to use her for joy, right? He wants the moment of pleasure, but then in a demeaning act before, you know, because I, I promise you in this family, Tamar's not going, oh, I'm so glad I get to be with Onan, right? She, she's, she just wants the transactional part of this element. She wants a child. And Onan is using her for pleasure and pulling out at the last minute, sorry for that, and spilling a seed on the ground and essentially at that point in the ancient world, it really is just akin to rape. He's using her and exploiting her. Um, and it's gross. And, and Catholicism, if you ever hear them talk about Onanism, which probably nobody ever hears that anymore. I've never heard that. Onanism is a sin. And so the, the idea behind that is getting into ejaculation or any kind of sexual gratification apart from the intention of bringing forth children is is called onanism and it's a sin and that includes birth control masturbation all kinds of stuff like that that is is viewed as sinful because it prevents the possibility of life so and it's named after this guy who's who's a real gross character come on dude you get i think you covered it all (laughs) i don't know i think the think the audience gets what's going on here yeah so so verse 10 you know, if, if what God did to Ur and striking him dead on the spot for being that uniquely wicked, he killed Ur. Well, he does the same thing to Onan. So we're on, we're on a roll here. Judah's firstborn and secondborn sons are struck down by God for being wicked, which, you know, which is weird because it's, you know, we're reading a book where you see God who is dealing with extraordinarily wicked people. And he's really patient with Jacob, and he's really patient with you know Judah. He's going to be really patient with a lot of people, but in this case, there is something about Ur. There's which is such a weird name to say. It feels like you're making fun of him. Ur. There's something about Ur, and there's something about Onan that and God. Like and it's it's all by His sovereignty. He looks and says they are they're irredeemable. They're they're not going to be redeemed. And he strikes them dead on the spot with justice. And so as we're reading through Genesis, I got to be careful how I say this because I'm going straight brain to mouth right now. Um, There's a real sense in which if you're in the covenant of God, there's a comfort to know that he's extraordinarily patient, right? He's extraordinarily patient. He, he waits, he, he deals with you. He, you know, he's going to, he's got the long view of your redemption, but then you see somebody like, or an Onan, who are vile, and got yet God's holiness in this situation is not to be mocked, and he puts them to death right on the spot. 
which for Tamar's sake, I'm kind of like, yes. Like, what a dirt ball. Am I allowed to feel that way? Yeah. All right, good. I mean, there's something about God even protecting Tamar here from these guys. Yeah, totally. Like, there's some kind of covering even like God did mm-hmm. for Sarah and for the rest of them. Like, he's showing that he cares about this woman who obviously in this family is, I mean, it's the story of all of the women in these families. Yeah. These kind of forgotten people that are kind of second-class citizens that, you know, you can't even, Tamar's just look for someone to take care of her, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. Like, that's I, it. She's not asking for a lot. It's I love that you bring that up because Abraham fails Sarah. It's God who has to show up and plague Pharaoh and be like, whoa, 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 you're not doing that to her. And yeah. the same with Isaac. You know, he goes to Abimelech and says, whoa, 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 you're not going to do that to her. And Hagar, you know, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure she's taken care of. And here, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that these, you know, wicked, nasty men have no place in the house of the woman who's going to carry on the line of the Messiah. It's just, that is wonderful. I love the fact that he is such a protector like this. So then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. Now, stop there. What's wrong with that? She should go to his house. Yeah. He's he's like responsible for her because he took her for her. Right. So he's... Again, they're all just bucking responsibility at every every turn. They're just like ah, and gross. Yeah. Like right, I, I'm not going to pay for you. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll ultimately we'll we'll make sure you get a husband. But in the meantime, as you wait and you grieve, you know, get, get out of here. Go back to your father's house. We don't want you here. You just wait until my son Sheila grows up. You know, and then it said for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Judah's looking and saying, okay, I've given this woman to Ur. God struck down Ur. Then I gave her to Onan, and God struck down Onan. And you would think, like, Judah might, this might be a good time for a conversion moment for Judah. Like, maybe yeah. I should take God seriously, but he's like, nah, I'm, I'm still going to war. <laughs> you know? I'm yeah, still- he should look in the mirror and be like, I'm the problem, not Tamar. Yeah, for real. Like, he's like, Tamar's the issue. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, no, you raise these dirtbags. And he's going to keep chasing after other gods we'll see in a minute. But he's like, you know, God's going to strike down my last son, Sheila, if I give her to him. So again, he's just worried about him. Yeah. So rather than going to my son, Sheila, and being like, you need to be a good husband to her. <laughs> like, you need you need to change your ways. Don't be like your brothers. He's like, no, nah, we're just going to leave her hanging. Which means, again, Judah's looking at her and whether he realized he has no intention of giving her a husband. Which, in the ancient world, again... He's essentially condemned her to a hard life, a hard life. So remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, we're not told how long this takes. It, it could have been, you know, she's sitting there as a widow aging. and a, I mean, she's already had two husbands, which essentially makes her unmarriable. At this point. So if Judah doesn't, there's only one, there's only one kid left, you know, in the family. So if Judah doesn't come through with Sheila, she's essentially condemned to a life as a, as a widow without children in the ancient world, which is the, the double, the double whammy, not good. So in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter died. So that means Judah is now available. So Judah's married to the Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman dies And so now, all of a sudden, Tamar, who has to this point only been a victim, you know, of these, you know, dirt balls, has a plan. 
So it says, when Judah was comforted, so after he's done grieving, he's now going about his daily life again, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira the Adulamite, so who, who's he hanging out with? Canaanites. Canaanites. This is another you know tribe off of the Canaanites. It says, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, so which... This, this is a big move. Like, we, we don't understand that, but it's like saying, I'm done with this. I am so done being a widow. I'm, I'm taking matters into my own hands. I am not just going to be passive anymore. I'm taking off the widow's garments, would have been, which would have been seen as scandalous to do so without having permission from her father or Judah here. Like, what's, okay, why, you're done grieving. What's your next course? Who yeah. are you going to? She's like, no, 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 I'm done. I'm taking this into my own hands. And she covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was, had grown up. So now it's, it's at least that long. Sheila, Sheila's now a man. He's grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she knows Judah's full of it. She, she gave him every opportunity to make good on it. He didn't. And so now she's like, all right, I'm going to put on this veil. I'm going to go. I'm going to sit on the side of the road on the way to Timnah. And it says, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. There's so much that's wild about this passage. She knows, let's just pause. She knows that he is so wicked that she just puts on a veil, goes and sits on the side of the road. She doesn't approach him. You know, she's not like, you know, flagging him down, flagging yeah. him down or like, you know, putting out advertisements or saying, Hey, I'm over here, a prostitute. Hey, prostitute. She just knows that he's so wicked that if he walks by a prostitute, he's so appetitive and gross that he will not be able to pass by a prostitute. That's her plan. Yeah. Imagine your daughter-in-law knowing that's your reputation. Ugh. <laughs> Seriously. Like, it must be well known if, like, she's like, oh, I know what the game plan is. Yeah, I just have to dress up and pretend to be a prostitute somewhere in the vicinity of where he's going to be, and he will sleep with me. Guaranteed. Like, that's the plan. What's even more gross about this is later on in this passage, when the, when, when the servant of Judah goes to make payment, he comes and says, where is the shrine prostitute? Well, what's a shrine prostitute? Remember how I told you uh, yeah. that the Canaanites were into child sacrifice and orgies and you know the way that they worshiped their God was through all kinds of crazy sexual stuff? What that means is what is what is Judah doing? He's not just sleeping with a prostitute. It's religious worship. It's worship. He's worshiping a pagan god by sleeping with a prostitute. Oof. Which means he's not only betraying his family, he's not only betraying you know everything that he has pledged and promised, he's outright engaged in pagan worship. So this, as the son of Jacob, you know, he's he's totally wayward. He's this is the apostate son. So if you're out there and you have a son that has walked away from the faith, well, here we go. This is Judah, who's making bad decisions, who's who's giving himself to these other gods and. Doing all the wrong things, right? It's so interesting how the Bible, I mean, think what? This is 29 verses that we're going to get through, and so much takes place. And it's just like, yep. sometimes it's really easy to forget that it's the real life of these real people. Mm. That this actually took time. 
It's it's wild how much the the Bible is really good at saying a ton of stuff in a short amount of time. I was listening to somebody give a commentary on this because Moses writes Genesis, right? So from the time that this happens to the time that Moses writes, we have 400 years. And so there there's there's all kinds of questions about how this works. Like we know that God inspires the scripture, so he gets the he ultimately superintends and sovereignly guides to make sure that we get the exact story that we're supposed to have from God, right? Like these are inspired. This is the word of God, but it's penned by somebody who lived 400 years later. So how in the world does he know this? Like, you know, where does the story come from? Does God just come and whisper in his ear? And there's all kinds of viewpoints on this. So does God come and say, okay, now write this, you know, or is this coming through oral tradition that God has kept? And so the person I was listening to and, you know, Believe what you want on that. As long as you believe that the scriptures are inspired and authoritative, you're okay. But this person was saying that through the process of oral tradition, because that's all they had, you know, these stories hadn't been written down before Moses. The process of oral tradition has a way of getting rid of the superfluous stuff, right? So all the extras, non stuff, with time, they it all kind of falls away. But the essentials of what you're going to be taught, the the heart of the message, it's like purified. It's refined with time because as you're passing along the story, you get you, the the story keeps its most essential elements to where by the time you get to scripture, it says so much and it gets to all the the points and the key things, even though it's really boiled down to the most essentials. And I thought that was that's an interesting view of how to do that. Like with hundreds of years, a story that has tons and tons of detail is boiled down to its most essential elements because that's what's passed on in oral tradition from one to the next to where 400 years later, as God is inspiring it, only the essential details make it into the story. It makes sense, even though that's the exact opposite of the argument most people make about the Bible. What do you mean? Like... How could this have been passed down through so many hands and without details being added or, you know, like, oh, yeah, the telephone game. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, which what you just said makes way more sense, because if I'm sitting down and telling my kids in that time the oral history of our family, I'm going to have to get pretty good at just picking out the big parts because they're going to be like, no, move on. <laughs> you know, imagine that like public speaking. It is about getting yeah. it down to the right amount of things at the right amount of time. Yeah. And so that makes complete sense in my mind about oral tradition. Yeah. It actually purifies it, not... See, I'm, I'm somebody who has a lot of work, both as a speaker and a writer. I get made made fun of for going too long. <laughs> and they say, you know, the, the best speakers are the ones who can say a lot and the fewest amount of words. So when I go to edit, like when I start editing chapters and stuff like that, by the time I get done editing, there's more words. <laughs> like, because I, oh, I wanted to say You're that the too. opposite. <laughs> I'm terrible. You guys don't know how many times after we f- finish recording this podcast, I get a voice text or a voicemail from Sam. It's like, I got to add this. And I'm like, <laughs> what? We just talked about it for an hour and you have more? Yeah. Well, but it's usually like it to some way that it ties to Jesus. And I don't want to leave that hanging because that's, that's important. Um, so anyway, it is interesting how... This, this is a pretty wild story, and it's so condensed. That's, that's fascinating. And so one of the other things, and it makes you, you, that's why you have to pause because the one line that it gives you makes you think of all these other things. Like, why, you know, the, the Bible could have said, and 
Tamar knew that Judah was such a scoundrel that she only had to stay by the side of the road, but it just gives you the short thing, and you have to think, man, she 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 knew this was going to work. Why did she know this was going to work? Because she knew he was such a scoundrel. Yeah, the Bible's actually respectful to us as readers thinking that we're actually thinking along with it, Yeah, which is so opposite of modern days where everything needs to be spelled out, yeah. but the Bible's like, no, you guys need to work a little bit towards this. There's info out there that you need to find, which yeah, is the, fascinating. And the more you interrogate the text of the Bible, the more you see, the more you pull out of it. Like even, even the next thing, right? She said, you know, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. So he doesn't have payment, which means what? He wasn't planning on sleeping with a prostitute. This is all impulsive. This is just impulsive Judah. He, he couldn't resist. He doesn't have payment, so now he's stuck in a pickle. I'll, I'll have to get a young goat from my flock, and, I, and I'll, I'll send it to you. And she said, well, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And so now here it comes. This is where she's just so brilliant here. What pledge shall I give to you? And she said, hmm, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. And those are really, really important things in the ancient world that you do not want to get rid of. So what's a signet? A signet is usually on a ring. And so like if you ever see in hot wax or something like if, in old times when they would send a, a letter and the envelope was sealed with wax or something and there, you would see somebody roll a, a seal or whatever across that to make an impression in the wax. That the signet is that's the sign of your authority. You see it in the word sign, signet, and it's the sign of who you are. It's your authority. It's the way you do your signature. So she's like, "I'm taking that from you." Now, well, what does that mean? And the cord, which is usually worn around the neck, that is designed specifically to your household. It's an identifying thing. And then the last one. So you have the signet, you have the cord, and you have the seal. Well, a cylinder seal was attached to the cord. So it's like, a, imagine a necklace that comes around the front, and then the charm of the necklace would have been your seal. And it also is what you use to roll over larger clay, and, and it was a way of notarizing your signature, right? And then you have your staff, which is, that's a picture of your authority. And so what has she just taken from him symbolically? It seems like everything, <laughs> right? Like I'm taking your identity and your power. You are so willing, and now hear this, because this becomes applicable for us, in your impulsive appetite to feed your sinful desires, you're willing to give up your identity. Now play with that. What does that mean? Personalize it. You do the same thing, right? Like when when you feed your appetites, when you chase after your addiction, when you when you when you sleep with somebody that you're not supposed to, whatever the case might be, you might not literally give them your cylinder and your seal and your cord and your staff, but you're giving them your identity. Mm. You're trading your identity for for pleasure or ten minutes of pleasure. Like you're giving yourself away for all this stuff, and that she knows that he's willing to do that. Think she knows, in a a really backup, sad kind of way, she knows that his identity is so worthless to him Mm. that he'll trade it all for pleasure, a moment's pleasure. And publicly trade it all. Like Those are very key identifiers for the public of knowing who this guy is, and he's just willingly handed it all over to a prostitute at this stage. Yeah. 
He'll put them at risk. Like that's one of the things when you read the Proverbs or when you listen to somebody talk about the importance of a reputation, like you trust God to take care of your reputation, but by being a man of integrity or a woman of integrity, you're protecting your name, your identity, and you're not willing to soil it. You're not willing to jeopardize it for petty things. He doesn't care about his name. He doesn't care about his reputation. He doesn't care about his identity, which is a diagnosis that's really sad, actually. It's, it's part of his problem as he's looking for a moment's pleasure here or a moment's pleasure there or the easy thing over there rather than building a life where his identity and his name mean something. And that's the easiest way to fall into sin is to say none of this matters. Yeah. If you can convince me that my life doesn't matter, I'll chase after whatever, anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that is a satanic hold that is over Judah right now. My identity doesn't matter. I'm I'm willing to risk these things. And this incident obviously kind of wakes him up to that, I think, at the end. Oh, for sure. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. For sure. So anyway, she he agrees, right? Your signet, your cord, and your staff. And so he gave them to her. It's like he doesn't even think about it. He doesn't go, uh, how about just the signet? Yeah, he doesn't. And there's no negotiation <laughs> at all. Just, all right, yeah, these, these are meaningless to me. Which, by the way, affects the household as well. Because mm. it's not just his name that he's throwing around it's the family and so he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him and she arose and went away taking off the veil and she put on the garments of her widowhood and again do you notice that every generation has somebody dressing up pretending to be who they're not not until you just said that (laughs) it's it's true like jacob is pretending to be Esau, and Leah is dressing up pretending to be Rachel, and now you have Tamar dressing up pretending to be a prostitute, which is how sad that the only way that she could get provided for was having to debase herself by pretending to be a shrine prostitute. Anyway, but you ever wonder why she didn't just say, you know what, I'm going to go find another. I'm sure I can find some other guy who is a scoundrel who, you know, is just looking to impregnate somebody. You know, she sticks with the family. Didn't she legally have to stay in that household, though? Legally. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, (laughs) she's risking her very life by tricking Judah. So, I mean, when once you see when he finds out that she's pregnant, that's against the law. How you? What do you mean? You don't have a husband. How can you be pregnant? Mm. So no matter what, but why does she stay in this family? Why not run away and go find a guy, you know? I don't know. I think part of it, and this total conjecture again, I think she's interested in the promise because she could have left. It's just so hard to think about the promise in the midst of this because it feels like it hasn't been brought up in a while. Yeah. Like it feels like this generation has just forgotten that they're even a part of it. Yeah, but it makes me wonder why is she, she knows she's been around Jacob. You know, she was with Judah for a long time. She's, you know, at this point you get the impression that Jacob is at least starting to turn and he's more centered on God. He's raised up Joseph to be a godly kid by this point. So she sees the family, but she knows Judah's a train wreck. But when he's, you know, stringing her along and Irv's gone and Onan's gone and it's obvious he's not given Sheila, like when she says, okay, well, I'm going to come up with a scheme to get impregnated by Judah himself out of wedlock. She's got to know, man, that, that could be really dangerous for me. Why don't I just go get a safe, you know, go out there and find someone else and hope to try to scheme through them? Or why not? Why not dress up as a prostitute and try to get impregnated by some random guy? Yeah. You know? So it seems that she wants to be in this family for some reason. 
And the only thing I can come up with is she's enamored by the promise that she has seen in this household that's precious, at least at this point, to Jacob and Joseph. Anyway, my theory, I think that's true, but I, uh, you know, I can't. And, and she's pretending to be a Canaanite prostitute to do so. Get, think how screwed up that is. Stuff, yeah. Anyway, at this point, if she's watching the rest of the family, she's like, no, oh, this will probably fly. <laughs> anyway. All right, so she's got all of his identifying marks. So she takes off her veil, puts back on the garments of her widowhood, and she's on her way. And so it says, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite. He's a good guy. Hey, yeah, he's Judas. honest. Yeah, He's taking care of his debts, right? Which actually is saying something. I'm actually a little surprised here. No, he's got to get back his stuff. Oh, that's true. This is purely selfish still. Yeah, that's stupid of me. Yeah, of course he's going to send the goat. Yeah, he's like, I, I messed up. He's probably having some real... <laughs> He's embarrassed for sure here, and you, you pick up on that in the passage. So he sends the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, um, where's the cult prostitute? There it is. She was pretending to be a shrine prostitute. Where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim by the, by the roadside? And they said, there's no cult prostitutes been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, now listen to Judah, because this is, this is interesting about his character. Listen to what he says. Oh, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. We'll be a laughing stock. So Judah has categories of morality. He knows that doing that is humiliating. I just traded the most precious stuff, my identity, for a moment of pleasure. He knows it's wrong, and he's like, just nobody, nobody can find out. He doesn't, he know, he doesn't care that God sees, <laughs> but he's really concerned about his public reputation and what everyone else is going to say and what they're going to talk about. Does this feel familiar? You know, trade your identity for a moment of pleasure, but you don't want anyone to know about it because you're ashamed of what you've done. It's like even as as pagan and as wicked as he is, he still knows and he still feels the the sting of shame over how he's living. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Like before I before I became a Christian, I was living in ways that were that were not right, but I mean, they were, they were seen as cool or whatever with my friends. I mean, nobody was going, I can't believe you're living like this really. I mean, apart from adults maybe, (laughs) but, but there was something in me that knew like this, this is not a full life. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And I just keep trying to feed this monster and it's making my life more and more hollow. Mm. And so the fact that Judah in the midst of doing all these very brazen, wicked things, is going, don't tell anyone. They'll laugh at me. He knows, even in that culture, like Canaanites are going to laugh at you. <laughs> you know, He knows something about my life is off. So he says, let her keep the things as her owner will be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So about three months later, what, what happens three months? You know, Start to show. Yeah, you got a little belly bump that's starting to show. So she's pregnant, and we're going to find out that she's pregnant with twins. So, you know, three months is going to yield a little bit more of a, a bump. And so Judah was told, "Your Tamar, your daughter-in-law, she's been immoral, which is laughable. And, and literally there, it, the, the word is 
more like she's been a prostitute. She's she's been unfaithful. It's a, it's got sexual overtones there. So your your t- daughter-in-law Tamar has been unfaithful. Moreover, she's pregnant by her immorality. And Judah, so what's Judah going to say here? I mean, just the craziest response. It is the craziest response. See, but all of this is just, it's like one after the next showing you the depravity of Judah. And, okay, so Judah's about to want to execute her. So Judah, he still technically has authority to make this decision. Yes. Okay, so just because he shirked the responsibility doesn't mean he lost the authority. Correct. Okay. So he's like, you know, go live with your dad. I don't want to pay for you, but I ultimately hold power over life and death for you because mm. I am the patriarch into which you were married. Okay. So so here you have her, and, and Judah hears she's pregnant, and he's like, well, hold on a minute. Like, it wasn't by Ur. It wasn't by Onan. It, it's definitely not by Sheila. How'd you get pregnant? So he's convinced that she's out, you know, playing around, and he says, bring her out and let her be burned. Like... That is stunning, stunning. That, and it's just impulsive. Like, how dare... What has he just said? Don't let anyone find out about how wicked I am, right? And then he finds out something wicked that she did, and he says, burner. Mm. So the same judgment that he's fearful that the community is going to pour on him. Of course, he'd have been a little bit more protected as a patriarch man, whatever. But the same judgment that he fears from the community that's going to fall on him, and so he lives a secret life, now all of a sudden he's the raging moralist. Burn her. Burn her. Mm. And so you see he's not a man of integrity. He's he's living a double life, and he's a moralist on one side of the coin and an absolute debauched, really terrible person on the other side. Yeah, at that point he didn't even check on the information. <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> he just made a judgment call about her life based off of a third party telling of a story. And as much as he has put her through, right? You know, I, I'm withholding a husband from you. I'm sending you off to your dad. I'm not taking care of you. And now I hear that you've committed adultery. You almost get the sense that Judah is like, good, get her get her off the rolls. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. get rid of her. I don't want her to be my responsibility anymore. I'm tired of thinking about her. Plus, she's been a curse on my family, so kill her. Because his first thought should have been as a vulnerable widow that she might have been raped or something like that. Yeah, right? Like, that's much more reasonable in that day and age than this (laughs) widow of two dead husbands is eligible. If anything like that is happening, you don't see it in the story. I mean, it's not there. You just get this really cold, harsh person. And so you go back and you look at ancient legal codes, like burning by fire was pretty rare for things. And interestingly, like in the code of Hammurabi, it was reserved only for those that were guilty of incestuous affairs, which is ironic, right? Um, Because this is an incestuous affair. Judah doesn't know that yet. (laughs) Now, this is where you, you get the fist pump moment for Tamar. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she's being brought out, so everybody runs, grabs her. You know, they, you imagine she's being held, brought out, shamed publicly. But as she's being brought out, she sends word to the father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. Boom. <laughs> yeah, boom. Do you think that everybody's looking at his stuff? Like, uh-oh. <laughs> 
And I mean, because it, she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the court and the staff. And so it's like, she's, she's leaving it on him to say, okay, it's up to, to you to identify this person. But if you're, so if you're going to kill me, cause he could have been like, I'm just going to keep this, you know, killer anyway, and it'll keep it a secret. But then everybody's going to wonder, well, whose are they? Whose are they? And so the moment that she says, you know, the guy that impregnated me owns these, all of these identifying marks, by the way, which would have been evident, Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I am, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And then he did not know her again. So this is the moment at, on which Judah is going to be converted. So after this moment, for the rest of the story, you're going to get the impression, you know, he goes back home. He's not among the Canaanites anymore. He is going to change his ways. We'll see by the end of this story that he's got some element of sacrificial love. He cares about his dad suddenly. He's he's willing to lay down his life. Like he's a changed man from this point forward. And God used Tamar and all the injustices that she suffered and her confrontation at this moment that says the wicked man who impregnated me owns these and he's the one who's now calling for me to be burned to death and all of that comes together in a way that just punches judah right in the gut and he has to recognize my goodness she is righteous and i'm not which would have been a big statement looking at somebody who's just played a prostitute and who's been impregnated outside of marriage to stand up publicly and say, because what he's doing at that point is saying, no, 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 leave her alone. But what he's also saying in front of everybody, remember, this is the guy who's been like, don't, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, Shh, quiet. Now he, in front of the very people that are bringing her out to be burned, who are probably whipped up into a frenzy, like woohoo, public execution. He is saying, hey, this, this woman who has been a prostitute, who has been impregnated outside of wedlock, She's better than I am. That's, that is a, a real humbling and significant step toward repentance. You know, there's the, there's the old line that says your, your repentance should be as notorious as your sin. Well, here, we, here it is. You know, he is lifting it up in front of the people saying, leave her alone. I am more gross than anything she's done. And it, it, for some reason, it reminds me of, of Jesus, you know, and, and except Jesus is perfectly righteous, right? But where he shields the woman in John 8 and says, you know, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Um, what, he's, what he's doing in that moment is he's, he's looking at all of these people who publicly are burner, you know, stoner. He's saying, hold on a minute. Before you do that, I want you to be like Judah for a moment and take personal inventory. Can you honestly say that you're better? Can you say that you're sinless? Can you say that you've met the standard and you don't need mercy like this woman does? Because if you don't, if you don't need mercy, throw away. You're like, go ahead and throw the stones. And at this point, Judah, it's like, you know, God wrestled with him in that moment and says, okay, do you need mercy? And at that moment, Judah, like the people who dropped their rocks, is like, oof, <laughs> I, I'm worse than she is. Yeah, Judas is just the sinner's version of John 8. <laughs> right? It's it's the flip. It's the inverse. Yeah, like Jesus can't say, I have sinned, so don't <laughs> yeah, hurt right. her. But Judah can say, man, I'm super sinful, and yeah. I'm, I'm the wrong one in all of this. Yeah. 
Because what Jesus is doing is, is you know, he, he's not making a, a moral equivalent between him and her or trying to, to measure what he's doing is saying, all right, who among us doesn't need mercy? If you don't need mercy, man, judge away. Hmm. And in this moment, Judah's going, I need, I need mercy more than she does. You know, I'm the one who drove her to this decision. It's my wickedness that led her to this desperation. Anyway, he gets his he gets his identity back as well. Kind of restored identity. Yeah. Like it's actually him now. It's yeah. not just hiding behind that public identity of I have authority and this is who I am, this is who my family is. He's finally been honest with himself and everybody. Like, oh no, this is really who I am. Yeah. And there's part of it. It's like, you know, when God changed Jacob's identity and says you're going to be called Israel from now on. Well, every time that he got called Israel from that point forward, it's a reminder You've been shown incredible mercy, right? So, so imagine now Judah, every time he signs something, mm. every time he rolls the seal, every time he puts the signet ring in, every time he you know takes puts on or off the cord, those things are now reminders of who he once was and what he was shown mercy from. It's mm. cool. So, God, you know, it's like it's trophies of God's mercy. So verse 27, closing, closing out the chapter, we have another weird birth story. And then we're, we're going to kind of get through this rather quickly because we're pressing up on time. It says, uh, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. So again, we have twins. Remember, Rebecca has twins, Jacob and Esau, and they're wrestling around in the womb. And so same kind of story. And when she was in labor, one put a hand out. So you have a baby who's in delivery, who's coming out, not head first, hand goes up first. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first, identifying as the firstborn. But because the delivery is, you know, going wrong, you, you get, probably what happens is, no, we want head first, so push back in. And in the, the meantime, when he goes back in, now the brother comes out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And so his name was called Perez, and afterward his brother, so Perez is going to be the line of Christ, and afterward... Uh, the brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, what's interesting about him having a scarlet thread on his hand is, you know, if this is a kind of repeat or an echo of what happened with Jacob and Esau, what was interesting about Esau when he was born? Two things, really. How was he described? He was red and hairy. Red and hairy. <laughs> so ridiculous. He's red and hairy, right? He comes out like an Irishman or something. <laughs> When, when Zara's arm comes out, she, she identifies him again with a scarlet thread. And so the firstborn, is, who is not going to be in the line of the Savior, is going to be identified with red for some reason. Um, so you have Esau, who's got the red, who is red, his name, Edom, red. Um, and then you have Zara, who's going to be red, and Perez is going to be... Um, in the line of the Messiah. And for some reason, like we don't know a ton about Perez, but he becomes this blessing, the name of blessing throughout Israel. So like you fast forward 800 years when Boaz and Ruth are, are getting married and people are giving him a blessing. One of them says, may your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. And so this guy is going to carry on all the kings of Judah. 
So David comes through this guy. Solomon comes through this guy. Hezekiah comes through this guy. And ultimately, Jesus will come through Perez. And so his name becomes associated with blessing. And it comes out of Judah, think about his story, and Tamar, a woman who played the role of a harlot to get impregnated. And it's like, man, Jesus just decorates his family tree with people that make it, they force us to remember that he is a God that uses and he decorates the story of redemption with people that are utterly unworthy and total messes and he's patient with them and he uses even even the repentance of their own wickedness to radically change their lives like you'll see in the life of Judah and Tamar. And by the way, they, they don't get married, but she has a son and she's in the family he goes home, and she's going to be taken care of in the in the family of Jacob. And so God is good. Amen. But how bizarre. Another weird one. How bizarre that this is going to be the guy that God says, nope, this is where I want my line to trace through, this guy, not not Joseph. You almost feel bad for Joseph. <laughs> but God, God chooses the underdogs always. Yeah, now whenever I hear line of Judah, this is all I'm going to think about. Yeah, right? Yeah. We don't serve a God of cancel culture, though, man, because every one of these characters by today's standards would have been... Is out. The Bible would be blank pages. I mean, good grief. Would have been much shorter, at least. So God has... so All that to say, if, if God has this much patience to not be done with someone's story, even when they're this egregious then maybe we could learn from that and be a little bit more patient and a little bit more gracious with each other. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, and just to feel the assurance yourself. Mm -hmm. Like he's not, you're not at the door getting ready to be kicked out. Yeah, and I don't have to walk around on eggshells. Yeah. You know, there's, relax. Your father loves you. Mm, That's good. Thank you for joining us on this week. Uh, episode of Genesis 38, another another bizarre one, <laughs> interesting one, but again, one that shows how wonderful our God is. I hope you enjoyed it. We will see you next week on the Out of Water podcast. Have a blessed week. And by the way, because we stopped mentioning this because Mark was way better at this than I am, if you haven't liked our podcast or subscribed or given us ratings, we, we would ask that you do that because it really does help other people to find our podcast. So if you're on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform that you are finding us on, rate us, give us a good rating. You know, if you're going to give us a bad rating, then just don't bother. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> just stop listening. <laughs> but if you want to give us a good rating, we'd appreciate that. And, and subscribe to the podcast and share it with others. We'd love to see our audience grow. We appreciate you joining us. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.